I'm Evelyn and I'm a geoholic. <laughs> what was that move? Uh, I have not seen that. It's like you had a convulsion there or something. <laughs> Just trying to mimic what these guys are doing, right? <laughs> oh, man. Here we are. Episode 167. Uh, 167. Last week was a blast. I got to tell you, Noah and Devin, uh, what, did, they, yeah, were, yeah, they were not, great. Did not disappoint. Great. Yep, yep. Great. Uh, very well recepted. Yeah. Very well recepted. And yeah. then, a lot of uh, and then you way. guys, they actually went out to uh, came. They well, little secret, top secret special project we're working on. Oh yes, top secret project. Top, top secret. Yes, yes, secret. Yeah. Stay tuned for more on that. Uh-huh. Um, we would be remiss if we did not mention National Surveyors Week, which it, we are in the midst of. Is so that when, this week? It is this week. Is this week, National Surveyors Week. Right now, today, as a matter of fact. Yes. Okay. We are in the midst of it. Um, by the time this episode comes out, it will be in the past. <laughs> we should have mentioned we it last week, last but week, it's kind yeah. of last minute. But one uh, item to know, Ronald Reagan in 1984 proclaimed National Surveyors Week. Oh, did he? Yes. Yep. I did not know that. Did Any reason why? Or he just woke up that morning and said, this feels like National Surveyors well, Week? I know that in one of the movies he was in, he played a surveyor. I also did not know that. Yes. Yes. There's a famous picture of him standing behind like uh, a transit. Okay. Yep. So he must have had something, I don't know, something for surveyors. I guess so. Yeah. I don't know who, any idea who did National uh, Engineers Week. You guys don't even, serve, you don't even celebrate that. Yeah, we do. You do? You don't hear about it, but yeah, hmm. it's, it's a thing. Yeah. I think it's the same week as Shark Week. <laughs> And then Shark Week came sense. on and then just just diminished any popularity from <sighs> National Survey. You guys got screwed. Yeah, well, I think we really did. Hey, before we move on, I want to mention, because we haven't in a while, uh, our Spotify playlist. So if you oh, don't yes. know, yes. every episode, our, uh, our guests get input on the music that we play. And uh, we have a playlist on Spotify with well over 10 hours of music. So it's every song from every show we've ever done in chronological order, which is pretty cool. It... Uh, also a small story. Uh, my mother-in-law has seen this playlist and oh, listened to it and nice. loves it. It's great. It is very, I think the term is eclectic. You get a little bit of everything, all good jams. Yep. And I mean, if you're ever on a 10 hour road trip, there you go. <laughs> yes. It'll get you there. So like, and subscribe to the Geoholic Spotify playlist. Yeah, added a new, new song every week. <laughs> Exactly. What's new? What's new, Sean? Uh, not a whole lot, man. No? Um, I can happily say that uh, the Faber household is mold-free. Nice. Yeah. We are uh, moving to phase two. Perfect. Uh, which is determining how to put our uh, put our house back together and uh, and got got hot water and we're yep. back back moving in. So. Did you have like people in hazmat suits walking around just like spraying <laughs> chemical everywhere to get rid of this stuff? No, probably should have. But funny story, the guy that came to uh, do like a final test, apparently he got like his order wrong and he thought it was like already at asbestos a hot zone hmm. or something so he shows up in the tyvex <laughs> suit with a mask on and my wife's just inside like oh hey uh, 
uh, am I supposed to do something here? And then something he's like, I don't think you're supposed to be in here. And then apparently he got his, he got his wires corrected uh, and realized he had the wrong orders and uh, gotcha. did his mold test and everything's good. Good, good. Glad to uh, hear. What about Glad you, Kent? What's new in your world? You know what? I got a good uh, massage story, actually, um, of all things. Is this a uh, family-friendly massage story? Or I will cut it off. At the right appropriate at time. Point. Yes, for sure. <laughs> okay. So I uh, I haven't had a massage in, gosh, probably six months. And uh, after uh, curling in that tournament a few weeks back, yeah. I had like a, I could just tell like something's going on with my left pec and my shoulder and like the whole thing's just all jacked up. And it, it got to the point, I'm like, I got to do something about this. So, you know, I went on Google and uh, looked for uh, a good massage in my area. Mm-hmm. And I like to patronize the smaller massage versus the corporate massage folks, if you know what I'm talking about. I, I do. So I found this young lady and uh, came very highly recommended on Yelp. Okay. So I was able to get in like in a day's notice. That tells you something right there. Sure. And uh, when got, got a massage, right? It was a uh, Saturday morning. And... Uh, it was one of the best massages ever. Hour okay. and a half long massage. And she's just like this little lady. She's probably like four feet tall, right? Mm-hmm. Like a fire hydrant. Because like, mas- like when I get a massage, I want like the you pain. Are you a deep it's tissue like guy? Deep tissue. Okay. Like, right. I want to walk out of there like, oh, God, it hurts so good. But the funniest <laughs> thing was, she's like, so I, before you get lay down, I want you to feel comfortable with things. And I'm just going to let you know that I'm going to massage everything but the kickstand. <laughs> That's what she called it. <laughs> that is awesome. <laughs> that is exactly what she said. Exactly what she said. So it was awesome. But great massage. Cool. Um, really good stuff. Tell us about that opening number. Uh, that was a band called Kiss. Song called Rock and Roll All Night. For those who don't know, Kiss is an American rock band formed in New York City in 1973. Boom. Consisting of four members, Paul Stanley, Gene Simmons, Tommy Thayer and Eric Singer. That's got to be the current lineup, is what I'm assuming. Yes, yes, right. yeah. yeah. It's the yeah because I thought they're I don't know who Peter the Chris. Other, yeah, Peter. Yeah, exactly. I don't can't remember who. They, so anyway, uh, released over 20 studio albums, has sold over 100 million records worldwide. They've been inducted to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Their loyal fan base, known as the Kiss Army, is known for their dedication and enthusiasm for the band. Kiss has a major impact on the music industry and is a and is widely regarded as one of the most influential rock bands of all time. Can't disagree with that in any way. Yes, and I was so happy when our guest today mentioned in his bio that he was a Kiss fan in elementary school. First of all, I knew we had to be about the same age, which mm-hmm. is awesome. Um, and I was a huge Kiss fan in elementary school to the point where I remember we made like these crochet things. It was like in an art class, right? We were like crocheting what like, you know, people are doing like cats and dogs and apples and stuff like that. You and I crocheted the kiss letters, you know, the K and the I and the really cool S and stuff like that. And my little crochet thing, I probably still have it somewhere. I, I would not, would not surprise me if you don't still have that. I probably do somewhere. And this makes me think we should have a geoholics Navy, maybe rather than the kiss army, the geoholics Navy. I think there's something better we can come up with. Yeah. Well, let's work on that. Maybe like the geoholics degenerates. <laughs> that works, of course. <laughs> we have a strong following. <laughs> we do. <laughs> All right. We are in the Mentoring Monday studio uh, again. Uh, if you're not familiar with Mentoring Mondays, this is a, uh, a Trent Keenan effort. Yes. So every Monday, he hosts a live event uh, via Zoom. You can register at Mentoring Mondays at XYZ. But he has guests on every week that um, are very influential in the survey, geospatial world, that type thing. And it's just kind of like an open forum. They mm-hmm. do a presentation, and it's uh, you know a very interactive thing. 
So if you haven't checked out Mentoring Mondays, you're definitely missing out, and you absolutely should. Next absolutely. up, the Airworks somewhat random trivia. What somewhat do you got this week, random Sean? trivia. Uh, these are sp- these are turning into be less somewhat and less random, but uh, a little bit more uh, related to our guest. Our guest. Uh, uh, this evening is is an attorney, so I chose some just generic uh, uh, trivia nuggets from the legal world. Gotcha. And uh, this first the first item is ties with the fact that it's uh, um, National Women's History Month. We are still in that. As yes, we are. yes, we and, are. And uh, and uh, don't know if you know this, but Arabella Mansfield became the first female lawyer in the United States in 1869, wow. when she was admitted to the Iowa bar. Despite a, not, a law not allowing or only allowing men to take the bar exam, she took it and earned top don, top honors. Hmm. She also sued to open the profession to women. And because wow. of her efforts, Iowa changed its licensing laws to become the first state to accept women and minorities to its bar. Iowa. Yep. Iowa. That's I wonder why Iowa. That's crazy. There's also now uh, a Mansfield rule hmm. that promotes diversity and accountability in big law firms. Uh, at age 16, Stephen... Bacchus became the youngest person to attain a JD. What's JD? A Juris Doctorate. Juris Doctorate from a U.S. law school when he graduated from the University of Miami School of Law in 1986. Uh, the U.S. Constitution was drafted in 1787. Is the world's oldest written national constitution still in use? Wow. I did not know that. Uh, also a little known fact, there is a misspelling. The word Pennsylvania in the signature section is misspelled. Alexander Hamilton ac- accidentally wrote Pennsylvania with one end, mm. and it's still on the document. How cool is that? Uh, New York has the most lawyers with 184,000. North Dakota has the fewest with about 1,600. The most lawyers per capita is D.C., of course. Mm. Uh, they have approximately 40 lawyers per every 1,000 residents. <laughs> And the lowest densities are Arkansas, Arizona, and South Carolina with about 2.1 lawyers per thousand. Wow, really? Yeah. But isn't that crazy? From here to D.C. is, what is that, 10, 20, almost 50 times, 40 times the amount of attorneys per per thousand square feet. So glad I live here. thousand residents. And lastly, uh, HBO employed a team of 160 lawyers before releasing the film Going Clear, Scientology and the Prison of Belief out of fear of being sued. (laughs) (laughs) Gosh. Oh, man. Uh, Good stuff. Yeah, thanks for that. I appreciate it. Uh, Next up, we have the Advanced Genetic Survey's Weekly Words of Wisdom. This also goes along with our guests this evening. Okay. Um, To lay the groundwork, first of all, everybody listening knows that Abraham Lincoln is one of my heroes. And, of course, Abraham Lincoln held many jobs, including being a lawyer. He was a tavern keeper, a rail splitter, a storekeeper, a postmaster, and, of course, a land surveyor. Yes, he was. His career as a surveyor began in 1833 when John Calhoun, Sangamon County Surveyor, that's in Illinois, of course, offered Lincoln a job as his assistant. So this is one of my all-time favorite Abraham Lincoln quotes. The best way to predict your future is to create it. Ah, I like that. Abraham Lincoln. Yeah. The one and only. Before we get to our guests this evening, here is this week's Bad Elf Minute. Hello, Geoholics, and welcome to Bad Elf's Point of Beginning, a segment specially crafted for the consumption of geospatial news, history, and technology. We hope you enjoy the content and perhaps even learn something. My name is Dr. Nick Smolovsky, I'm a Geoholic, and I'm here to be your geospatial guide. 
National Surveyors Week is an annual event that is celebrated in the United States to recognize the contributions of land surveyors to the development and progress of the country. It is typically held during the third week of March and involves various activities and events aimed at promoting the profession and educating the public about its importance. The history of National Surveyors Week dates back to about the 1980s when the National Society of Professional Surveyors, or NSPS, was established. The NSPS is a professional organization that represents surveyors in the United States and promotes the advancement of the profession. Since its inception, the NSPS has been working tirelessly to improve the image and perception of land surveyors and to increase public awareness of their vital role in society. One of the main reasons why National Surveyors Week is important is that it provides an opportunity to recognize the hard work and dedication of the profession. These land surveyors are responsible for measuring and mapping the Earth's surface and providing accurate information about land boundaries, topography, and other important geographic features. Without their expertise, many of the development projects that have shaped our cities and towns would have not been possible. Another reason why National Surveyors Week is important is that it helps to promote the profession and attract new talent to it. Surveying is a highly specialized field that requires advanced training and skills. By highlighting the importance of surveying and opportunities that exist in the field, National Surveyors Week inspires the next generation of surveyors and ensures that the profession continues to thrive. Now, let me share, you a, share a joke with you about land surveying. Why did the land surveyor bring a map to bed? Well, because he wanted to find his bearings. If you have any questions or comments about today's POB segment, please reach out to me via LinkedIn or through the Geoholics channels. And that does it for us at B2 Studios in sunny Texas. Live long and prosper, my friends. All right, let's get our guest down here. We have uh, Sean Healy with us this evening. A little bit about Sean. Born and grew up in Tucson, Arizona. Uh, we call it the dirty tea in our house, uh, only because my oldest daughter went to U of A, my youngest daughter went to ASU, but uh, we just refer to it as a dirty tea. But I love Tucson. It just got some accolade, like one of the best cities in the world or something like that. Uh, we were talking about that earlier. We really? think that they uh, found a little extra money in the budget and threw it in the marketing <laughs> department, and all of a sudden everyone's feed had a little news story that yeah. said how great Tucson was. and uh, yeah, World's best city or something. Yeah, yeah something like that. Like, <laughs> Okay. It's, it's money they didn't allocate towards filling potholes. That is exactly <laughs> correct. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, we've talked about this before, but the roadway uh, maintenance budget may have been gutted once again this year towards the marketing budget. But go, good for them. Go. Hey, if all, everyone in this room saw it, everybody saw it. So yeah. good, good, good stuff. Absolutely. Sean attended uh, U of A, Colgate, and University of San Diego for law school. Hobbies include skiing, golf, tennis, and pickleball. Who's not playing pickleball these days? Oh, yeah. Everybody's playing Everybody's pickleball, playing except pickleball. for me and Sean. Um, yeah. We're too busy podcasting, I guess, right? Yeah. And, 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 cur and curling and raising daughters and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah. Uh, he's an owner and the assistant managing partner for the Phoenix office of Lewis Brisboy, a nationwide law firm, working as a prosecutor in Tucson, which is your first job, I believe, out of college, That's right? Correct. This That's is right. interesting. He, he tried three bench trials his first day on the job. They were dumped in his lap as a result of a last-minute emergency and tried his first solo jury trial a week later. And we're going to circle back on that. 
Uh, two children, of course, and he's passionate about taking care of his clients to ensure the best service possible. Sean, welcome to the Geoholics. Thank you. It's great to be here. Uh, it's great to have you, and um, hope you're prepared for this. Um, hopefully, this doesn't uh, affect your career in any way negatively. Um, but it is now time for the Trimble Pro Point Icebreaker. So, what is your favorite cartoon character, your favorite color, your favorite car, and your favorite cuisine? Favorite cartoon character? I, I guess that would depend on when you asked me, but when I was a kid, I'd wake up every morning on Saturday with a bowl of cereal, yes. go plunk myself down on the family room couch. Yes. I'd start with uh, Looney Tunes, uh, loved um, Yosemite Sam, yep. his, mm-hmm. his uh, just goofiness, his one-liners, um, you know, start saying your prayers, rabbit, and things like that, <laughs> and, um, you darn galoot. Loved him. Um so favorite color was one of them, green. Um, favorite car is um, something I don't have. It's a Mercedes. This is what I'd love to have. Mm. A Mercedes uh, GLE GT. Um, there's one called the Rocket, okay. which is really an AMG, which is very, very fast. That's a yep. car I'd love to have. And I'm sorry, I forgot the last one. There it was cuisine. Uh, favorite cuisine. Cuisine. So again, at, when I was a kid, it was crab legs. Now mm. I have two items on the list. Um, the first one is roasted corn pizza from La Grande Orange. Mm. Kind of random. Had it. I modify it, but mm. I love that. So when mm. I travel, I come home. That's my go-to comfort food. Mm-hmm. Yeah, kind of random. But uh, Debbie and I love going there. Second favorite uh, are the wings at JT's mm. Bar and Grill. Oh. And I, get, <laughs> I, get, I get the works, and they're terrific. I love sitting there at the bar, bellying up, watching sports with some friends from the neighborhood or taking them home if I have to. So All good answers. Yeah. Very yeah. good. How about you, Sean? We've never asked this question before. Uh, we have not. Uh, favorite cartoon character. Uh, similarly, uh, I used to wake up as early as possible on Saturday mornings, watch cartoons. Yeah. Uh, Foghorn Leghorn. Oh, yeah. Love that yeah, guy. That big, he's a big old goat. Oh, himself. man. Yeah. yeah, he's just, I don't know, just, he was just the charisma even, mm. uh, even got me at a young age. Uh, what do I got here? Uh, favorite color, blue. Yep. You know, I'm a okay. blue guy. If you look at my closet, it's like 95% different nice. shades of blue. Uh, favorite car was the first car that I owned. Um, <laughs> really? Uh, yeah, well, not owned, was was uh, handed down to me from sure. my sister. It was a 1987 hatchback Honda Accord, two-door. Oh, yeah. I just car. if that Very reliable. Oh, man, I ran the tires off of that thing. I mean, you name it, but it uh, just a... Very, uh, yep. very special car for me. And favorite cuisine is, uh, I'm, I'm an Italian guy. I can eat, uh, you know, pasta or meatballs or anything. I can eat Italian every night of the week. Good stuff right there. What about you? Uh, favorite cartoon character? Cartoon character, um, I love Speed Racer. Always love Speed Racer. Big okay. Fan. Uh, Mach 5, that would be my favorite car. No, not really. But uh, color would be gray, I suppose. Car would be, I mean, something like realistically obtainable. I've always wanted like a, you know, a late sixties Bronco. Okay, sure. Definitely love those. Love those old cars. Mm-hmm. Uh, and cuisine, uh, pizza. I could eat pizza every day of the week. Yeah. So, um, yeah, good stuff. Good, good stuff. get to know you questions. Yeah, there, huh? who came up with those? I don't know. I don't know. So, some some great <laughs> producer. <laughs> All right. All right, let's get to know Sean a little bit. So growing up in Tucson, um, you know, talk a little bit about the role maybe your uh, your parents played in your, uh, whether it be in your life, your career path, what have you. Sure. 
So it was kind of twofold. My first off, my parents, um, by the time I came along and I was old enough to get in trouble, they were worn out for my brother and sister. So my <laughs> sister was nine years old and my brother five. So it was great, great work, brother, bro and sis. Uh, you wore them down. So I had a lot of freedom, actually. So I kind of learned how to figure things out on my own. But from a life path perspective, um, my dad, uh, was he went to Colgate. Okay. So that's cool. the only, that's how I got in, right? He got me in. So he went to Colgate. Um, he then flew jets for the Air Force, uh, flew an F-86. He was actually stationed on St. Lawrence Island, which is no longer an active base. But you could actually see Russia from that island in Alaska. So wow. it's on the Bering Strait. So he was stationed up there. And then he, he ended up being stationed in Tucson, and he flew for the National Guard and put himself through law school at U of A. So, and then he became a prosecutor, much like I did at the Pima County Attorney's Office. And he was there for, gosh, many years, and he was the, the chief prosecutor. Then he went out on his own. Um, so he became uh, basically a criminal uh, defense lawyer, and then he morphed into plaintiff's work. And so he was kind of my inspiration from a career perspective, and I'll tell you an interesting story about him in a minute. My mom... Um, you know, she, she really helped me with school and sports. So she was actually very athletic. She was a great tennis player, uh, champion uh, of the club she played at. She was a great golfer, and she was a great basketball player. She actually had a, a very cool hmm. skyhook. So she got me really interested in sports. I played a lot of sports as a kid, had a lot of fun because of her. I was, the I guess, the uh, jack-of-all-trades, master of none. But um, And then, you know, so but seeing my dad grow up, I, I knew eventually I wanted to be a lawyer. And um, he tried some incredible cases. Some were high profile. He actually defended the University of Arizona football coach, uh, Tony Mason, who was being prosecuted in the early 80s. And it was getting a lot of press coverage, especially locally. And uh, Tony Mason, as I understand it, said you know, he was charged with fraud and some other things and misuse of funds. And some of his um, assistant coach, coaches pled uh, and pointed the finger at him. And he said, this is my career. This is my reputation. I'm not going to plead guilty. We're going to trial. So nobody wanted to touch the case, apparently. And my dad was actually phasing out a criminal law. But he said, all right, I'll take this one last case. And it went to trial. And he got a great result. Um, so, you know, that sort of catapulted his career. And um, I, I remember going to his office as a kid and, you know, hanging out and doing homework or whatever. And so he was kind of my inspiration career-wise. Mm. That's cool. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's awesome. So I'll, I'll tell you a qu very quick, funny story. He told me when he was calling some um, witnesses, character witnesses, and I won't say the coach's name, but you've all heard of him. He called them and said, hey, you know, I've got Tony. I represent Tony, and we're going to trial. We need some character <laughs> witnesses. And, and so this coach said, oh, I know Tony. I love Tony, of course. Yeah, happy to help, happy to help. So they chatted for a few minutes, and then the coach, towards the end of the call, goes, hey, i got a question for you, Mr. Healy. Yeah, are, are they going to ask me about my recruiting? Mine, <laughs> an accomplice in some way, shape, or form here. You know, this guy's all the way across the country, and they said, "Well, they might." And, and the coach said, "Let me call you right back." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, then never got the got return was again. from from his attorney. So, <laughs> the credibility came into question. That's awesome. So I followed a very similar career path as my father. I was a prosecutor in Tucson, and then I actually went to work for him for a year and a half. Oh, and it very unfortunate. He passed away unexpectedly at 68 in 2001, and um, you know it, it was it was it was tough at the time. But I, I was married at the time. We decided to start over in Phoenix, and it's been phenomenal ever mm -hmm. since. I'm with a great firm and love what I do, and I actually love Phoenix too. I nice. miss Tucson, but I love Phoenix. Too. Sure, nice. absolutely. Yeah. Um, we mentioned in your bio that you know your first job. I mean, you were basically thrown to the wolves. Um, how do you think that affected you? Like, did that kind of set you on a on a, on a path? Or something sure. like, um, you know, how, how did that, 
you know, getting thrown to the wolves like that affect your, uh, your career path? You know, it was, uh, at the time I was terrified, but now looking back, I'm, I'm very uh, thankful. So on my first day on the job, uh, I didn't know anything about a courtroom, what I was doing. I didn't know what, what it was like to be a prosecutor. I was supposed to shadow a guy for two weeks. We'll just call him Jim, right? So I was supposed to shadow Jim for two weeks, and, and he was my mentor, and I was going to learn from him, from him. So we walk, we kind of schlep it down to court, and the, it's misdemeanor court, and we're carrying red wells, these, those expando things full of, full of files. And we get down much on a table like this. He puts everything down, and he picks up his schedule for the day. It looked like a map. I couldn't even see his face. And then he drops it, and he looks at his wristwatch. Then he picks it up, and then he drops it, and he goes, oh, boy. This isn't good. He slides three files over to me and he goes, you have to go try these cases down in Judge So-and-So's courtroom, Judge Simon, I think. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't even, what time? He goes, in five minutes. I go, I don't even know what these are, what, what's in these files? What, what are the charges? What, who are the witnesses? You know, I had no idea. And he goes, I'm sorry, I got to be in two places at once. And I kind of think he did this on purpose um, and without telling anybody. So and I just sort of took a deep breath and I go, okay, what do I have to lose? I'm expected to just fall on my face here. And I took a deep breath and I said, all right, Jim. Tell me like the three to five things I need to do so I don't completely make an ass out of myself. And, and, and so he said, oh, that's actually a good question. He goes, all right. So venue, you have to establish the crime occurred in Pima County. Two, uh, identify the defendant. So like you've seen in the movies, point have the police officer point out the person. And three, cover all the elements of the crimes that occurred and the person was charged for. And I uh, charged with, and I said, you know, I don't even know what the crimes are. And he's like, eh, ask the cop. He or she will tell you. I'm like, okay, great. So I'm like walking down the hall, you know, thumbing through stuff. And I kind of grab the cop and go, hey, you got to tell me what this is about. So we go three, three back-to-back uh, bench trials and I got convictions in two out of the three. They were wow. small, minor crimes, you know, um, victimless yeah. crimes. But I learned quickly. I walked out of there going, oh my God, that was incredible. That was kind of a rush. And after that, it was just, it was great. It just helped me build confidence to answer your question for the rest of my career. Yeah, for sure. Um, Off topic here, what are a couple uh, maybe TV shows, movies, what have you that are, you know, law or attorney related that uh, most accurately portray what it, what it's like? Is there anything out there that comes to mind? You know, it's, it's funny you ask that. I actually, uh, I can't stand watching Oh, really? law shows because I go home and I'm like, that's all I do all day. And yeah. so I actually, I, I shouldn't say that's, a, that's too strongly worded. Um, you know, I, I'll, I'll tell you like a few good men I love oh, yeah. uh, because one. it's just dramatic. Um, there are some points in there. So I, I don't watch TV shows, but I do like a couple movies. So, um, cause it's like my trade, right? I want to go home and kind of take mm-hmm. a break from it. But a few good men I love just because some of the points in there are so true to form. Um, you know, don't ask a question when you, when you don't know the answer. Don't, uh, mm. don't strenuously object. Uh, <laughs> right, <laughs> it's like that. Look like you're in control. Like that's the, exactly the answer you thought the person was going to give. You know those sorts of things. That are, I, I believe it or not, those are some things you. A lot of lawyers have probably incorporated. And then, of course, my cousin Vinny. You mm. know, the, the wearing a brown tux to court always yeah. works really well with judges. You know, they love that. Uh, so awesome. um, no, but it's funny. It's actually, my cousin Vinny when he asked a witness about all the little things that could interfere with your line of sight to a crime, right? Those things matter. Mm. They do. And, and that's something I learned as a prosecutor. Like, could you actually see it? What was, where were you? Mm. Was there anything in your way? So there's little things like that. So those are some, you know, those are some movies that uh, have inspired me and I've taken little bits and pieces from. Yeah. And comedic relief as well. <laughs> no, sure. Yeah. 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 Uh, no, go ahead. Um, 
So as this will be the last uh, prosecutor related question. What what did you what was most rewarding for you? Um, you know, being a prosecutor. How long were you a prosecutor? So I was. Let me tell you what my goal was as a prosecutor. My goal was to try a or at least assist with the trial of a, of a serious crime. And I was able to. I was fortunate enough to do that in about a year and a half. And someone pulled me up from felonies. I, I, I was in felonies at the time, but I was kind of uh, lower level burglaries and property crimes. And somebody pulled me up and said, I need help in this trial. So I was able to kind of, I, I did two back-to-back trials with this person and she was great. But um, I would say the most rewarding thing, so that was a year and a half and I, I achieved my goal. And then I decided, okay, I went to my dad's, he had his own firm. And I said, look, I've achieved my goal. I thought it would take me at least two years. I'm ready to start doing plaintiff's work when, whenever you're ready to have me. And he said, all right, let's do an interview. He actually interviewed me. Uh, that was strange. And he was very formal uh, <laughs> with his partner. So the most rewarding thing I'd have to say is representing, you represent the state and the people of the state, but dealing with victims and helping them through mm. difficult times and crimes. And there's a, a victim's bill of rights in Arizona. So people that were victims of violent crimes or property mm. crimes and really helping them through the process. And then on a personal level, uh, being thrown to the wolves and learning how to try a case. I mean, within a week, I was doing my own jury trial by myself against two lawyers, a jury consultant, and an expert. My my boss, who was a difficult boss, boss kind of quirky guy, would sit in the back, wouldn't even help me. He's just grading me, like looking at me and grading me. So that was kind of nerve-wracking. But really... Um, you know, trying cases and helping victims out really, really, um, you know, it was very rewarding and and kind of formed who I am today as a lawyer. Interesting. So in in that case, you're like, you're on the offensive, right? And now you're more on the defense, right? As a defense attorney. So what do you like better? I mean, are you, is there, is there an advantage to being the person on the offense versus the defense? Who, who, who I guess is, in a better position going into a case typically? Sure. That's a good question. Interesting question. So when you're a prosecutor, you know, you don't charge um, when you don't have enough evidence, right? So you're kind of in control. The office is in control of that. So in that situation, when you're in, when you're on the offensive, it's, it's you know, it's, frankly, it's a bit easier uh, than playing defense, as, for example, as a criminal defense lawyer. Um, now I've kind of reversed roles, but at the same time, the persona that I project and have to project and that's expected of me is actually more similar to a prosecutor, right? Mm. So plaintiff's lawyers, like my dad, a little bit more loosey-goosey, more personality-based, we're kind of more rule-based. I mean, that's just how you have to operate. Uh, judges hold prosecutors, and they make sure they, they toe the line and those sorts of things. So although I'm playing defense from a persona perspective, it's actually being, it's more similar to being a prosecutor. Um, what's easier? I mean, it's always easier uh, playing offense. It just is in our system. Um, whether you're a prosecutor or a plaintiff's lawyer, you know, you start the case, you initiate it. Plaintiff's lawyer, you're gathering the evidence before everyone else knows a claim's coming. Things like that. It's, it's easier. So it's challenging to play defense, but it's rewarding at the same time because mm-hmm. you have to be a very good technical lawyer. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking like a like a football team. You know, they always say like a good defense can win you a Super Bowl type thing, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And that, that's a good analogy. Uh, you know, and a lot of times what we're doing in civil litigation is we're limiting risk, right? And that's part of what we do for our for companies, mm-hmm. our clients, professionals, et cetera. So we're trying to identify risk and limit it as best we can. Got it. Yeah, so, so going into that, uh, <clears throat> what you're doing now, like give us an idea of what your current role is, what your focus is and what what it has been since you left uh, the prosecuting world. Sure. So I moved to Phoenix in 2002, joined a small uh, defense firm. We were swallowed up by a, a big firm. So we're we're what's called a civil litig- uh, full service civil firm. So we do litigation, we also do transactional work. We're nationwide. We're in 
gosh, 55 cities, 32 states. So we have a big national footprint, which allows us to service people all over the country, clients all over the country. So what I do now is um, I represent companies and professionals that get sued. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I, I defend them in litigation mostly. Sometimes I give pre-litigation advice. So any licensed professional you can imagine just about, uh, we defend. And then any company that gets sued for any reason, um, could be a personal injury, could be something else, could be a transactional dispute. Um, that's what I do. So I, I help manage the Phoenix office. We've got a great team of lawyers, some of the best in the state, about 45 lawyers. And we do, we do as a firm, we do everything. Uh, we do employment work. We do workers' comp. Uh, we do OSHA work. Um, ADA, class action, commercial litigation, everything. So I help run the Phoenix office. We've got a great managing partner, Carl Mariano, and I've got a great team around me that makes me look good and uh, love what I do. That's awesome. So in your world, uh, you mentioned you, d you uh, defend companies and professionals. In your world, how do you define a professional? Ooh, this is a hot topic in, in this podcast. So Really? Oh, yeah. Interesting. Yes. Okay. I mean, I, I actually did. I didn't, I didn't know it was a hot topic, but I, I guess I define them as um, how insurance carriers probably define them. And that's, um, you know, under their E&O policies as a licensed professional who's providing professional services and they get sued for the provision of those professional services for whatever reason, right or wrong. And then they report it to their carrier. Their carrier hires me or my firm to defend them. So typically, it's a licensed professional. We've had right? we've had conversations on uh, certified professional or licensed professional, and the difference and mm -hmm. how you how do you define a licensed professional? And um, you, what I'm hearing you say is, if you have insurance, your insurance will define <laughs> you as a licensed professional, right? Well, let me ask you this: like uh, uh, an electrician. Would you defend an electrician? Is that considered a professional? Um, we have defended, we have defended electricians. Um, and that can be, I mean, I guess in a, in a loose sense of the word, yeah, that's a professional. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got electrical engineers, you've got uh, electricians who have to be licensed by a state and electrical engineers, you know, the board of mm -hmm. technical registration, all that. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I would, I would, I would define that as a, as a professional um, somebody like, you know, you've got the handyman exemption. If somebody's a handyman, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess they're a profession. Um, but typically we think of what we call professional liability defense work, which is what I do. Um, a lot of, it's typically a licensed professional. Yeah. So anybody that is like, um, regulated by like the board of technical registration, I guess. Correct. In Arizona. Or anyways. a, a board. A board. A, a right. board. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Oh. Lawyers uh, are regulated doctors, you know. Sure. There's a so I have to ask this question real quick. Sure. You, you know, all of the, of all of the licensed, licensed professionals, as much as you can tell us, which group is the most high maintenance or has the most issues? You know, I'll, I'll bet you. You're not going to call anybody out, but, you know, and you have a couple with you, so. I'll bet you you could guess that. <laughs> so I, I, yeah, I could. Yeah. Do you, you want me, you you want me to guess? Yeah, go for it. Architects. It's not a bad guess. Um, I would say, though, architects, I, I, most of the architects I've worked with have been terrific and they're very bright and and easy to work with and very diligent when it comes to providing the file. You might, and you guys were thinking, I, you're kind of thinking in your envelope of professions. I'll uh, think, out, uh, think outside my, the well, box. Mine is, uh, doctors. Mine, no, mine is um, um, home inspectors. There's a, there's, a mil, there's a million of them. I know, but when, when I, because I, I review the, uh, the uh, reprimands or yeah. the disciplinary oh, yeah, actions yeah, yeah. from yeah. the Board of Technical Registration, and yeah. it's almost all home Ton inspectors. Of them. Yeah. Ton of them. Okay. So you ready for the answer? Yes. Yeah pointing at myself. Lawyers. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I didn't even think oh, about yeah. that. 
Interesting. I yeah. knew that. I knew you guys were slimy, but I didn't <laughs> know that you were <laughs> slimy within <laughs> your within yourself. <laughs> well, I don't know if that's the word I would use, but we were just difficult. <laughs> okay, right? okay, that's okay. Our, okay fair our enough. Chosen profession at times is to be difficult. Uh, okay, people disagree with them. You know, espouse our position. So lawyers can be challenging. So do you do that? Do you represent other I, attorneys? I, I, I do, and vice yeah. versa. I'm sure yeah. there's a yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I would not have thought I would that. Have, I guess yeah, so. yeah. And that's wow. some, uh, look. I've represented some lawyers who are terrific, amazing, smart, very helpful. Sure. But but they just tend to be opinionated, argumentative. That's just the nature of the beast, right? Absolutely, absolutely. So let's talk about some things. Um, uh, you know, what are some things that companies or licensed professionals can do to uh, avoid having to come and see you? Sure. So first thing, the mothership of any job, right, or any project is the contract. And I, I know you probably hear this all the time, and lawyers probably hammer, hammer it all the time. But really, spending a little extra time or hiring counsel, if you don't have in-house counsel, if you're not big enough to help you hammer out a really good contract will save you a lot of uh, headaches later on. Um, so, you know, including terms in that contract that limit liability, uh, shift liability, don't overexpose you to um, liability or make, cause you to incur liability um, that, that, that you really didn't sign up for. Um, so having a, a, an important, uh, a really good contract is important. And there's a couple terms, provisions we can go over, but there are like six key uh, provisions you want to include in there. Um, you know, the other thing is I would say is picking up on red flags during a project. So if, if there's a huge change order or changing conditions or something like that, um, have your radar go up, maybe involve a, an attorney if you have one. Um, if somebody makes a threat to sue you, you might want to consider calling your lawyer, reporting it to your carrier, at least putting them on notice. And what can happen, what lawyers can do is they can kind of help you from the background. It's called risk management. We actually provide risk management services uh, for, for contractors in the middle of a project, something's going south. And we sort of help them behind the scenes, manage difficult emails, you know, help help them respond, things like that. So that's a value-added service. And actually, there's some insurance carriers out there that provide that service for free. So if you yeah. buy if you buy a policy with them, they'll say, you know, we we have we have this value-added service where we'll do risk management for you. Or, in addition, we'll help you. We'll look at key provisions in your contract before mm-hmm. you go into a project. And some of them you can kind of recycle, but um, they'll help you with that as well. And they have counsel. Uh, they're calling back back and. Uh, that that's actually a service we provide around the country for some carriers and their, their insurance. So when you're talking about insurance carriers, you're talking about uh, errors and omissions. Correct. In this case. Professional right? liability. Professional yep. liability. Yeah. Is there a difference? Synonymous. I, why are you asking me that question? Uh, well, you to like you know what you're talking about. Uh, I would ask Sean. Is yeah, there a difference I, I, between E&O insurance and professional liability? Is it just a term that different different uh, industries use? I treat them as just this basically you know, different terms from the same meaning. You know, there's E&O, there's PL. Um, I, I think they, in, in my, my kind of realm, they, they mean the same thing. They're used interchangeably. So about, uh, regarding contracts, like you started with, is it fair to assume that the contract that you get from your client is inherently written in their favor and you should expect to have some response. I like, th- is there ever a, I mean, have you seen it where you have clients that have just have great contracts that are <laughs> benefiting you versus them? Yeah. I think that's a, you always have to be on guard and protect yourself and your company and your employees. So I would say just assume that go into it with open eyes and assume that it's slanted in their favor and that what, what else would you expect? Right. They've got to protect 
themselves and their folks. So go into it with open eyes, assume that, look at things like, you know, there's a standard AIA contract. Oh, yeah. Don't just rely on that. Uh, oh, I, that is. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there are some broad <laughs> terms in there. I mean, it's, it's like a framework, right? It, it's a template designed to be customized. So don't be afraid to customize it. And look at things like the scope of work. You know, um, are they, are they uh, properly articulating that? Are they articulating it at all? Mm. And make sure you're not um, bringing on anything that you're not supposed to do. So limit the scope of work. Pay attention to limitations of liability. You can actually limit your liability in many ways. Make sure you're not over-promising things through warranties. You're not in, you're not adopting a standard of care that's way above like a best practice of standard care that's not mm. even required by the law. So there's different things you want to look at. But start with the scope. Make sure it defines your scope and, and, and you know, isn't too vague. Sean, I'm really excited about this one. Oh, yeah? Yep. Dimensional Geomatics is the latest friend of the program. Russell White and his team with decades of experience in dimensional control, metrology, laser scanning, and drone operations. Dimensional Geomatics brings together a history of exceptional project execution. Uh, they really do. From a single technician to multiple crews in different locations, they field highly trained, quality, and safety-focused personnel for their projects. Keyword there is safety. Absolutely. And qualified personnel. Whether it's laser scanning, onshore or offshore, refinery or forensics, Dimensional Geomatics has the equipment, people, knowledge, and contacts to fully tailor a solution to meet your needs. Yeah, with over 20 years experience and 24-7 global support, they are just a phone call away. In addition, with accurate and up-to-date LiDAR, from one square acre to a thousand square miles, they can provide you with the deliverables you need. No job is too big or too small. To find out more, go to dimensional-geomatics.com. Well, I mean, I can tell you from a surveyor's perspective, um, especially when it comes uh, to const on the construction side, if we're providing like construction staking, layout, as builds, that type thing, um, typically we'll you know provide a proposal, of course, and if we get awarded the job, we more times than not end up signing the contractor's contract, and when you read through their contract, they basically own you. <laughs> They're right. like, yes, here's your fee and here's what you're going to do. And I think that surveyors a lot of times are afraid to push back on that. One, they're afraid they're going to lose a job and they're just going to move on to the next surveyor who's mm -hmm. willing to sign that contract. Sure. Um, and maybe more times than not, it works out just fine, but it just takes once to uh, really, really mess up a company. Uh, I, I, if you're looking at me to agree with you, I would 100% yes. Yeah. I guess the question I would ask Sean about yeah. that is uh, it, when, when you get a contract from a contractor, like, well, let, let's take it one step back. Do you consider the surveyors or, or those type of professional, anyone with a professional license, are they contractors and should sign a subcontractor agreement or are they consultants mm. providing a professional service? And is there a difference? There, there is a difference. So consulting can entail things that are really hands-off when you're just you're, you're monitoring a project, almost like from a project management uh, standpoint. Contractor is more hands-on. You're kind of involved. You're kind of getting your hands mm -hmm. dirty. So, you know, we've represented both. And in the consulting capacity, we've argued, look, there was a mistake made. We were just consulting, and we're kind of a conduit of information, and we make recommendations to the owner. So... Um, that you can, you can help limit your liability if you're just serving purely as a consultant, right? You're maybe you're whispering in the ear of the owner or the GC or somebody else. 
Uh, so there is a difference. One thing you can do to your point earlier, Ken, is you can actually submit your bid with a contract, obviously, and they might look at it and crumple yep. it up and throw it out. It, it's, yep. a, it's a business decision, right, and a risk decision. Do we want to capitulate or do we want to push back a little bit? And, you know, you may find if you're very professional about it, say, look, we, we just, there's a couple terms in here that are very important to us that we'd like to include. They may, they may, they may agree, but then again, they may go down, down the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, you never know. Um, so along those lines, I've always wondered this and we've, we've come up with, because recently I've been doing a lot of contract review internally. Um, and the, the idea of limiting liability and my insurance coverage. And those two things are getting kind of mixed in, in some of our negotiations. Cause it's, it mm. says, well, you know, you have to have right. insurance, you yep. have to have a million dollar policy and a $2 million, what, you know, all those different things. But I also want to say, I don't want to limit, I mean, I have to put a limit of my liability to something. And they say, well, you can't limit your liability because we need a million dollars insurance coverage. How do those two interact and how can I limit my my liability and still have my insurance cover if there is an issue? Sure. So the first thing I'd say is call me and hire me and I'll help you with that contract. No, I'm kidding. Got it. Done and done. Done and done. (laughs) So you can segregate those things out. So when it comes to a limitation of liability, I mean, you've got a policy out there. You hope it pays. You hope it covers the loss. You never know. You've got an independent contractual obligation, right, to the party you're contracting with. So, and, and you're right, many of those contracts require them to be named as an AI additional insured or a named Mm -hmm. insured. Happens to us all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And that's just what they, what they expect. Uh, and then they become kind of, a, it kind of becomes a coverage issue with the carrier. But I would always tell you, if you can limit your company's liability, because who knows, maybe something happens, there's no coverage. Maybe the, the claims outside the coverage period, there's some coverage dispute, limit your liability. And there's a couple different ways you can do that. You can limit it to what you're actually paid. You can limit it to what you're actually paid or cap it out at something, the higher of the two, you're giving them a little bit on that one. Um, or you can limit it simply at the policy limits, mm. right? So then you're protected if, if, if you get a big claim and you've got a big policy. So those are three good options right there. And I would tell you to do that in every case in Arizona. Those limitation of liability uh, provisions are enforceable unless there's something you know unusual about them. But in other words, as long as they're not hidden, you know, they're standalone, it's clear what the, what the provision is saying, um, they're generally enforceable. Interesting. Yeah, because I've heard some, there's a lot of history there on the enforcement of limitations of liability and whether you can or cannot. And if I write a, you know, if I get a contract that limits my liability to 5,000 bucks and I make a $5 million mistake, (laughs) has that held up? Yeah. I mean, it holds up in some situations it, where it doesn't hold up as if you do something like a side job on the project that's not in the contract. Hey, you know, can you guys yeah, just stick yeah, this area yeah. over here? You know, it's not in the contract, but we'll just pay you cash and it's not, there's no addendum to the contract, things like that. Or if something happens that causes mm. other damage. So an example would be, you know, a part of a building collapses and it damages other property or people, and then there can be a way to get oh, around. Oh, okay, actually, yeah. yeah. Well, that example you just gave, like, hey, can you just go stake this over here? You know, I know, I know it's not part of the contract, but can you just take care of this while you're out here? Um, don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> well, you can Without, do it, but make sure it's covered in well, in your scope and under that contract. But you have to have something in writing, though, right? Yeah. I mean, no matter what, I mean, it's got to be, you know, whether it be a written staking request, signed off by everybody, or I don't know if, like, a field book would stand up in court, like, you know, so-and-so requested this to be done on this day, signed by so-and-so, signed by me as a surveyor. I don't know if that holds up or not, but you should not do that, period. 
So the example you just gave, that may hold up, but it may not include all the provisions that protect you in ah. your original contract, mm -hmm. right? Unless you make it an addendum to the contract. So your contract should contain provisions that say well, you, this can be modified only upon agreement of both parties and signed mm -hmm. signatures by both parties. And then you kind of you kind of slap it to the back and it mm -hmm. integrates everything that's you know in the contract. So yep. what you don't want to do is if you just invoice somebody for a side job, you're arguably outside the contract. Yep. Uh, you could be. So, And then in that scenario... Hmm. What are the terms and conditions or provisions that apply to that side job that wasn't under the contract but is still part of the project? When, when, when we're saying side job, could that also be out of scope? Yeah, yes, out okay. of scope. Is, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's, hey, I, I contracted you for this. This over here is kind of related. It's not in your scope. Just do it. Send me a bill. I'll pay you. Correct. What happens John's all the time. saying is, I mean, that happens all the time. And unless it's written and included in your contract, if things get sticky, it can, the same protections under your contract don't apply to the change order unless you make it. And it, sometimes there's not even a written change order. And right. Yeah. Surveyors will just go ahead and do what that person's asking them to do and invoice them accordingly. Yes. But- you know, there's no paper trail. So the question is, what provisions apply to the side job? And my question back to you is exactly I, what, what questions or what provisions do apply? We don't know. So a lot of extraneous or parole evidence comes in to try to prove up what that contract is. And it'll be he said, she said. And so that, that's where it gets messy. And it's more of a kind of a jury question or a question of fact, right? What were the mm. terms of the, of the agreement if it's not memorialized in writing? Yeah. So that's, that's a risk you run. Yeah. And I know sure. that you would... Uh, you have a different opinion than the professionals that might be listening to us, but when you get into it, in my experience, as soon as you talk, say jury trial, I already lost. Like whatever, <laughs> like if I was trying to limit my liability or limit the amount of exposure, if it's jury trial, I'm already probably have already spent more than my initial issue. Uh, I know you you guys probably love those because that's right. how you make a living, but. Um, uh, how can or, or back to I guess a question would be uh, if when you're in a professional setting, it, should that be the goal to avoid a jury trial? Absolutely. Do you ever see it work in the favor of a small consultant in the end? Yeah, I mean, look, we, we take cases to trial all the time. We, we've got a number of great trial lawyers and members of an organization called ABOTA, but that is, I mean, that's the pinnacle of, of, of a trial lawyer's life, but it is the ap absolute opposite for the client, right? You don't want to go mm. through that if you can avoid it. Um, you know, some clients on principle want to want to go to trial, but it's time-consuming. It's costly. If you have insurance that covers most of it, it's still costly because you're out of work for mm -hmm. two weeks or whatever. Some trials go on longer than that. Um, and there's ways, you know, it depends how much skin you have in the game, right? Do you have a, do you have a large SIR or deductible self-insured retention as SIR, meaning you kind of self-insure up to $25,000, dollars $100,000? Yeah, those, those are all expensive. Um, but I would say the main drain is, is it's taking, taking you away from doing your job, like right? what you're good at and what you're passionate about. And, and so you do want to try to avoid that if you can. And, you know, one, one option is to include an arbitration agreement with a uh, precondition of mediation. Mm -hmm. to try to settle yep. the case and yep. require that in the contract. I think that's good. When I built my own house here in Phoenix, I, I drafted my contract and I included that. If we had a dispute, we got to go mediate. And I made it very clear and simple and fast and who the mediators, you know, we can pick from a, a list that was in the contract and things like that. So, so I literally just typed mediator because that was my next question. Because um, I've always like, whether it be like, you know, at this point in my career, when I retire, whatever, I think I would love to be a mediator for cases that involve professional land surveyors. Um, so when does that when does that come in? When does a mediator come in? 
So a mediator can literally come in whenever you want. Mm. Um, if there's a claim, kind of a colorable claim, uh, for damages or injunctive relief, meaning you have to take a certain action, you can you can say, hey, why don't we mediate? Um, and then, of course, you can make that a requirement in your contract. You can do it in the middle of trial. I've mediated cases in the middle of trial. Uh, I was in a two- or three-week trial once, and we had a mediator who mediated the case a, you know, a couple months before, constantly on call. Hey, you know, this happened today. See if they'll take X. And then mm. the next day, something else happens. It swings the other way. See if they'll take Y. And you go back and forth, and, and, and we've actually resolved cases in the middle of trial. Yeah, doing that. So any really, the point is, anytime there's a claim for something like money <clears throat> or a request to repair something, and there's a dispute that needs to be mediated, you can call in a mediator. Interesting. So how do you find your, your the local expert, uh, the top mediators? So um, as it pertains to your specific your your specific case. So the way, I mean, the way we do it as lawyers, we talk in our office. Hey, this is a, like we send an email around my office. This is the kind of case, unless you just happen to know. Mm. Um, we just happen to have a list of some of the best mediators in town. Um, but you do want one that's knowledgeable in your space. Um, but there are some very talented mediators out there that are knowledgeable in a bunch of spaces. And they're just great negotiators and, and um, you know, shuttle diplomacy. They're, they're very good at that. So um, you can literally look them up. You can go to the state bar. Uh, your, your governing board may know some people, people in your industry. You can call me and ask me, and I'll tell you who I think the best mediators are in town. And what about, uh, like, expert witnesses? That's another thing I know a lot of, and again, I'm looking at this from a professional surveyor's perspective, you know, let's, I've been called in the past, like, hey, I would like for you to be an expert witness in this case where this survey, surveyor A says this, surveyor B says this. Wait, you have been called in the past? Uh, yeah. Someone has called you an expert witness? Yeah. <laughs> I'm shocked. Dude, I've been doing this for a long time. I, I mean, I know. I mean, your favorite color That's is just gray. That's a pretty face. So, yeah, I mean, I get it, but. <laughs> there is a brain up here. <laughs> Sure. But uh, so talk about that a little bit. Sure. Expert witnesses. We use experts. I and mean, one of the reasons litigation has become so expensive today is experts and legal fees. Mm. Um, but they become so expert intensive is the term we use. Mm -hmm. and, and it's almost like a war of attrition, right? Remember Star Wars back in the 80s with Ronald Reagan? Mm -hmm. We're going to build this and the Russia's going to build that. So um, it's gotten to the point where now you have, you know, sometimes in big cases, seven, eight, nine, ten. I think I've had more than 10. I might've had 12 experts in a case. So it becomes very costly, but from an expert standpoint, it, you know, it's a great, I know some great, brilliant experts. And one of the biggest cases I ever tried, I, really the expert won it for me. He was mm. brilliant. He says, uh, accident reconstructions with an architectural background actually. And the key issue in the case was visibility and being able to see a pedestrian at night in the middle of the street. And there's all these different factors that go into it, conspicuity, reflection, movement, all, all these different things. And he just nailed it. He was so good on the stand brilliant guy performed very well in the jury after said, you know, he won the case. He was just incredible and very informative and honest. So, you know, being an expert can be a great kind of, a lot of uh, professionals do it kind of on the side. Mm -hmm. um, some kind of go more full time into it. I would say it's, you, you have a little bit more credibility for still working in the field mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and doing expert work on the side, but it's a great field. It can be, you know, frankly, they, some of them charge a lot. So I think it could be very lucrative and, but it's also very forensic based. So it's kind of a lot of experts tell me, I love this work. Like, yeah. I love, picking apart mm. what happened during a project. So, yeah. Great work if you can get it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's, a, there's a word we need to talk about uh, because it's a word that I live with a lot and I still don't necessarily completely understand what it is. Uh, awesomeness. Well, I mean, yes, I live in a world of awesomeness, uh, but I understand that very well. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about indemnification. Sure. Mm. Uh, first of all, 
I know it's important. I know why. I know really very well familiar with the language in an indemnification clause, but can you tell me what indemnification is? Sure. So, um, and am I correct? Is it an important clause in the contract? It's one of the most important clauses, and it can be used offensively or defensively, and there's different types of indemnification. So, there's actually a very onerous type of indemnification called specific indemnification where I can say, Sean, um, we're going to contract together and um, you're going to, if we, if I get sued and it's mostly my fault, but it's a little bit your fault, you have to indemnify me and defend me, provide counsel for me. That's called a specific indemnity clause. There's also general indemnity. There's also comparative fault um, indemnity provisions. And that's where you defend and indemnify me for what you did wrong. And I defend it and myself for what I did wrong. Mm -hmm. So you, the, the big thing with indemnity is it can shift fault and who's paying for it. Um, why would I have to pay to defend you on something that I didn't have anything involved with? Yeah. If you had zero involvement, that's not an enforceable provision. So if I'm solely at fault, I can't just dump it. And, and, and contractors have tried to do that. GCs, owners, whatever. They try to do that, um, but it doesn't really hold up. It doesn't hold up in Arizona. But if you're 1% at fault and I'm 99% at fault, I can contract my indemnity and shift it over to you. And, and that's just a provision you have to say, I'm willing to accept that and take that risk or not. And that's why you buy insurance and name me as an AI in your policy. Mm. But uh, but it can. It's, a, it's really a fault and cost shifting mechanism that's very important. You should pay attention to it. Some provisions are not. Again, if it's sole liability on one side, you can't shift it. You got to pay attention to that. Um, there are some states that are shifting to proportional indemnity or comparative indemnity, meaning mm. I only pay for what I'm responsible for, you pay me. But if I might be the one, if I'm the owner, I might be the only person, or if I'm the GC, I might be getting sued. And I might say, well, look, part of the reason I'm getting sued is because of you. Uh, you got to indemnify me for what you did wrong, at least, right? Sure. I and mean, that sounds yeah. fair. And so, I understand that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Is Arizona one of those states? So Arizona does allow for specific indemnity, uh, but you can also contract, meaning the more onerous one saying, if you're mostly, if I'm mostly at fault, I can still shift some to you. And the way, you know, a, an owner, or sorry, a GC might look at is I've got the bargaining power. If you want to, if you want to work on this project, you've got to take a little more risk, right? I'm taking mm-hmm. on a lot of risk because I've got all these different subs out there. And so if, you, if you're going to, get paid, you've got to take on a little bit more risk. So Arizona um, does allow for specific indemnity, but you can contract however you want. You can do it, make it proportional as well. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Except for sole yeah, responsibility, you can't contract that away. Got it. So again, you know, looking at it from, and I know there's a ton of small, mid-size, even mom and pop type survey companies out there um, that in their mind, they're thinking to themselves, I, I, don't, I can't afford to have an attorney review every single contract right. that comes before me that they ended up ended up giving it a 30-second once-over sign, and it's out the door, you know, they're on to the next one. What advice would you give to them? So, you know, I, you can do your own research online. I'm sure there are a lot, I mean, there's so many services now online, and you can construct your own contract. Um, I know people that have done that, usually for their homes, but um, so they can do that. Or they can they can talk to friends in the industry. Um, and they can talk to an attorney maybe once, you know, kind of in the front end and, and use those same provisions over and over and, you know, get a good template in place. Uh, those are ways they can save money. You know, maybe you can have a, a single consultation. Of course, ideally, every project's different. But some people, the reality is people can't afford to do that. So you do what you can at the best at the beginning and kind of reuse that contract um, and different provisions of it. Yeah. So i got to ask, I know you probably can't be too specific, but I always want to know, like, 
What's kind of the craziest or most interesting kind of story you've got around the maybe construction surveying and and defending a professional service, you know, a, a, a licensed individual or a professional service provider? Like, give me give me some juicy nuggets here that uh, sure. Um, so I got, yeah, I got I do have to be careful. Uh, sure, just sure, because yeah. I've got a client. Uh, confidentiality to deal with. But, you know, as far as licensed professionals, um, gosh, you know, I, I, I've represented, again, lawyers, I've represented accountants, really nothing really crazy happens there. Um, you know, I actually litigated a case, not necessarily involving licensed professionals, but involving a, a plane crash, which mm. is very tragic, but really very, very challenging emotionally, but also from a technical standpoint, that was listening to an aeronautical engineer, so someone who's licensed talk to me and teach me about uh, aeronautics and engineering and, and, you know, talking to me for eight hours on a Sunday and teaching me about it. My eyes are glossing over. I'm like, oh, my God, this, this, this field is so complex. You know, a lot of interesting stuff um, there. I would say, you know, again, the expert I mentioned earlier, um, learning things about how, I'll give you an example. Uh, I had a case involving a collision with a pedestrian. How um, difficult it is to see someone at night in the road. Oh, how sure. long it takes your brain to react to that. We all think we, we react instantly when someone steps in front of us, but we don't. It actually takes about a second and a half to two and a half seconds. So learning about all the science uh, and biology behind that and biomechanics and, and um, that's called human factors, really, uh, the human factor sciences. But I'm trying to think, I've never had anything kind of in your field that happened uh, that was very crazy. Uh, I've had some in other cases uh, for sure. Um, but, and I've had some weird things happen. Like when I was a prosecutor, you know, we're young prosecutors. We used to go down and experiment with different personas. You're trying to find who you are. Right. Mm. And then guess what I learned after a year, what year and a half to be myself, <laughs> try to be someone else. Right. <laughs> so my friends, we'd all be walking about, I bonded with all the other young prosecutors and we walk, walk, you know, be walking back from, we'd be in court all day. We'd walk back to our office and, and, uh, so, you know, so one guy, Mike was like, hey, I tried this out today. I tried this joke in closing argument, this like minor crime case, you know, yeah. it didn't really go so well. Like the judge looked like Jerry Seinfeld and he had these round glasses on the end of his nose. And he's like, he just kind of looked at me and shook his head and said, no, don't do that again. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, awesome. we tried, you know, and I tried to be someone I was and I watched a really cool trial lawyer once and then said, I'm going to try that guy's persona tomorrow in court and it didn't work. So. Um, but we did see a lot of crazy stuff like witnesses get up and hug in the middle of trial and you're like, well, that's not, can I object to that? What, what do we do here? You're on the judge is looking at me going, I, I don't know what to do here. I'm not going to do anything. Let them hug. So, um, we've had some crazy stuff like that happen. I'm curious, like when you're in trial like that, what role does uh, body language play? You know, God, that's something I've wrestled with over the years. Uh, you've got that going back to a few good men. You've got the Tom Cruise motto, which was just look you know, stoic and like nothing's going on. I think you got to be true to yourself. I mean, if something affects you, it's okay to react a little bit. Look at the jury. I mean, I know a guy here who's a prosecutor, phenomenal prosecutor for the federal government. He, he's, he's very authentic, he says, and he'll kind of look and make little faces here and there. Just not crazy, but it's natural, right? I mean, you can kind of, you want to relate to people and you want to relate to the jury. And if something's going to cause them mm. to react in a certain way, you might want to show a little bit of a reaction. Mm. Uh, so I don't, it's not natural and normal for me to just sit there stoically the whole time. I want to react a little bit mm -hmm. and I feel more comfortable doing that as well. Sure. So it's a good question, body language. And people have, some people would say, I'm crazy. You should, you should, you should not show any emotion through body language. Mm. And I, I tend to show a little bit. Hey, can, can I talk about Diamondback land surveying for a second? Please do. 
By far our favorite friend of the program, their surveying department offers land surveying applications for residential, commercial, and public works projects across the western U.S. Their respected mapping team provides commercial subdivision and plat mapping, easements, and legal document preparation. DBLS is dedicated to building and maintaining an excellent reputation in the construction and development communities by constantly providing top-notch services for our clients. Trent Keenan and his team of professionals look forward to the opportunity to work with you. To find out more, simply go to diamondbacklandsurveying.com. And while we're on the topic, we might as well talk about Get Kids Into Survey. Yeah, I think we have to. Get Kids Into Survey began in 2017 by Elaine Ball with the creation of the first Get Kids Into Survey poster that reflected a fun resource for the survey community to share with their children in order to help them understand what their parents did at work. The response from the industry members was so overwhelmingly encouraging that just two years later, they have a whole range of survey posters in production and we have distributed over 60,000 copies globally. I have a feeling it's even more than that. As the Get Kids in the Survey community expands globally through its network of sponsors and brand ambassadors, the project now includes full programs of work for educators, scholarship opportunities, and a ton of resources that will inspire the next generation of surveyors. Education is our passport to the future, as they say. Find out more by simply going to getkidsintosurvey.com. Yeah. So if you're a, uh, a licensed professional uh, listening to this right now and you've gotten noticed that uh, you're getting drugged into a case, you know, potentially being sued, what have you, um, what, what, what's the first thing you do? Sure. So, you know, again, going back to the red flags, if you can see red flags ahead of time, try to take the bull by the horns. But if you can't, you can't always do anything about it. Um, you know, you, you want to notify your insurance company um, quickly and you want to start... If you have a lawyer, um, you can contact the lawyer. Some personal lawyers or small corporate lawyers don't really appreciate the need just because they, they don't they don't work in that space with carriers. But there is a need to report it to your carrier quickly um, if, if it looks like it's going towards litigation. Have and you then, seen a case real quick? Have you seen an instance where if you didn't report it to your carrier in a timely manner, they just told you to good luck to you and... Has that happened before, or they just give you a really hard time? Most policies have a requirement that you timely report claims. Um, How do you define timely? Because yeah, well, I usually that, try to take time is of the essence out of my contracts. But, right. <laughs> I, I mean, what do they consider timely? So what they consider timely is as soon as you have a claim, which for money damages, you need to report it okay. right away. And some might want you to report um, a potential claim, and the policies may differ. But errors, but there's there's what the insurance contracts say and then what judges will enforce, and judges in Arizona are actually pretty, pretty liberal. So if you report it, quote, late or months or even sometimes a year late, they still may allow it to be covered and that exclusion may, may not apply. Um, but I've actually seen a case that we were brought in on where somebody took the case, a kind of a personal lawyer, friend of a contractor, and took it all the way, like almost to trial. And then somebody said, uh, they went to a mediation. Someone's like, hey, uh, Sean, can't get to see you here. Um, where is your insurance company calling in or what? And the lawyers in the room, um, what's going on? Where are they? And they're, they're like, they look at their lawyer, like insurance company. What's he talking about? It's like, you guys didn't notify your insurance company of this. Oh my God. Everyone, everyone down the hall, all this mediation, their, their carriers are all on the phone or they're here. And so we got a call and we had to step in and try to try to fix it. So, you know, you gotta, you gotta appreciate that. Some people don't think about that. Oh, this is a commercial or a business dispute. Uh, err on the side of reporting it. You can go to your broker, uh, make sure you you choose a broker who knows your space well, though, mm -hmm. who's not just a buddy who knows if it can be a buddy, but they got to know the space well. 
um, report it to your broker. If you have a, a friend who's a lawyer or someone who does work for your, for your company, you can report it to them as well. But go to insurance route is, is very, very important. I'd say the other thing that's important is if you're going to get dragged in is start um, preserving the file and evidence, um, anything from text messages to photographs to emails. You got to make sure if your system deletes, it, it shouldn't. But gather all that because you can get in trouble and you get penalized if you don't have everything. Um, and, and, and I would just tell people, keep things as long as you can because you, you might get dragged in years later. Is there, and that goes to statute limitations, right? Yeah. Like, what is that? How long do I need to keep that stupid field book of a survey project we did six years ago? Sure. So um, there, uh, in Arizona, you know, we've got different statutes of limitations. So for, for negligence, it's two years. Um, under, you know, uh, for our Purchaser Dwelling Act and claims like that, um, it's eight years. So you can, you can actually get an additional year if you actually bring the claim in the eighth year. So I, I tell people keep it, you know, I, I'd say keep it for 10 years if you can. If it's not too expensive, keep, mm-hmm. keep it as long as you can. And there's also something called the discovery rule if you were sued mm-hmm. for negligence. They don't have, the statute doesn't start ticking until, the clock doesn't start ticking until the person knows or should have known of the mistake or the error that triggers a claim. So if it's hidden somehow, they might be able to bring it later. Right. Interesting. Wow. Um, what else? I had a question come to mind, but I lost it. Well, I think it goes back to, uh, like, in general, you know, insurance. Yeah. And, like, talk a little bit about, I think a lot of our listeners are, a, a good, good proportion are, you know, own their own business, run their own business, or have to cover, cover themselves and have to, you know, have to engage in insurance and, you know, is it all bad? Is it a necessary evil? Is it awesome? I mean, I mean, I know obviously that's uh, you know how you make a living as well, but talk a little bit about the importance of it and uh, and how to pick a good one, maybe. Sure. So obviously, start with a good broker. Um, be careful of the contractual requirements when you're contracting with someone else. Do, do does the contract require you to, to name them as an AI additional insured or something else? Because that's actually missed a surprising amount of times. Like I get a case and I'm like, hey, your contract requires this. Do you have a you know a policy that names the GC or somebody else as an AI? And uh, I don't know, you know. So that can be missed, and then you're really you're on the hook for that. That's a breach of the contract if you don't um, mm. comply with that requirement. Um, also. You know, is be mindful of things. This is like a, um, you know, a balance sheet issue. Um, the the more risk you're willing to take on, the more money you save in premium, right? So, mm-hmm. it's it's tough though. So you can you can have an, a higher SIR. You can self insure to a higher amount. You're going to pay lower premium. Um, the more control you cede to the carrier, the lower your premium. The more control you want to take on, um, then the higher the premium. Like, do I get to choose my counsel? Well, you're in control. You might hire your buddy who's going to charge you, you know, a lot of money. So the, those costs costs go up and down and, and SIRs and things like that. So be mindful of that. And you always want to make sure your limits are commensurate with the scope of the project. So if you're doing a massive project, a million dollars might not be enough, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if the exposure is $5 million or something like that. So you want to make sure it's commensurate with the – but, of course, that's going to cost more. So um, a lot of projects have minimum requirements, as you know, and usually they're at least a million dollars. So those are things to look out for, AI requirements, whatever the contract requires, um, and, you know, making sure the, the, the size of the policy is commensurate and paying attention to things like indemnification as well. Are you taking on too much of a burden? Um, and, and, and sometimes the contract may uh, require you to do something. Your insurance company will say, no, I, we're not going to take on that risk. You thought we were going to. So that's where a good broker helps you as well. What is the most 
risky licensed professional? Boy, that is a that is a good question. So we actually do keep some metrics on this, and it does vary by jurisdiction and state. Okay. Uh, I mean, there might be a time when you know civil engineers, um, you know your your space, uh, you know things like that where soils are an issue um, are at high risk. But it does vary. So California, there might be a different problem there is mm. than there is in Arizona. But, you know, typically um, architects and, and just sort of the structural engineers, structural engineers where, that's, we, that was yeah, guess, where we yeah. see it. Yeah. yeah. How has, uh, like, you know, technology is advancing at such a rapid rate? You know, you mentioned, like, text messages being part of, um, you know, part of uh, evidence and that type of thing. Is it is that made your job more difficult or easier? You know, it's funny you mentioned technology because I'm actually I'm actually a chat GPT person right now. I'm actually not me, so no, I'm, it's amazing. My daughter introduced <laughs> me. I'm a, whatever I'm it's fan. called, I'm uh, a she, big fan. Uh, there was there was about two months straight where that's all we talked about on the show. Oh, okay, so my daughter showed it to me the other day. She's yeah. in the tech space and she's like, "This is amazing. It's writing like you know, a, a, yeah. I have to do a bi- my own bio and it wrote it for me." So I would say it's actually. It's good and bad, right? Because you have a lot of evidence out there you need to gather. But I'll tell you, if you're on the right side of that evidence, it's fantastic. If you have emails mm. or communications or text messages or whatever, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, I mean, we, we can get people out of cases. You know, hey, you were supposed to do this. Hey, no, here's an email saying this is not our, you, you agreed it's not our, in our scope. So um, it's tough if people aren't good record keepers, right? And then the court, you can get penalized for that. It's called spoliation of evidence. Mm. But if they are, um, then they can kind of save themselves from a from some nasty litigation. But it seems like as the technology advances, the record keeping kind of does itself and you don't have to have a much of a staff to keep those records for you. You know, you don't have, we don't have a document retention staff anymore because it just, you know, somebody leaves, I store their emails and their files. It goes in the spot on the cloud and I'll need it if I ever need, you know, grab it if I need it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's just like like keeping track of text messages and stuff like that that are relative to the project. You know, that's you know that's tough. That's tough. Right. But it, if it's even no, like no one ever deletes anything, or but if you do, well, I guess you can go back and get it. You but. can always go, almost always go back and get it. Yeah. Uh, real quick about ChatGPT, is that do you see in your industry? Do you see it as something that you will need less attorneys because you have it? You know, it's funny. So probably five years ago, I was having this discussion with somebody and we were talking about what, what professions are really safe in our lifetime, mm. right? Like a surgeon. You can't replace a surgeon. Surgeon, there's robots that do surgery. I was going to say. Yeah. I play tennis with somebody and, and she's like, yeah, I actually half of my surgery is done by a robot. Um, mm. and, and research. Now there's AI that can do, uh, meaning artificial intelligence, that can do research now and crank out memos. And I guess there's some you know flaws and they need to be worked out. But uh, I guess as a trial lawyer, you're pretty safe. Sure. But all yeah. of the ancillary work, who knows? I mean, it yeah. could be, I, I don't know, we could all be without jobs soon. Um, and, and I've heard, I don't know if this is true, I've heard you can take an artist, a musical artist, like Kiss, and you can say, hey, create a new album and listen, listen to all their music and create a new album. No idea if that's true, but that's kind of scary. It might be uh, true, it just might not be any good. Right, right, yeah. well, that's true. I don't think you could do that for a flock of seagulls, though. <laughs> There is no, there is no AI bot out there that can replicate uh, fr- flock of seagulls, especially the hair. Yeah, I don't know if they saw that hair. I, I guess they're coming this Friday, right? Oh, so yeah. funny. Well, we talk about that a lot, and how technology can, you know, the idea is you can replace surveyors with GPS, and you really can't. But uh, I was just, I mean, that's interesting. Uh, yeah, like I think that's a good point. Yeah, you can't, can't AI your way through a jury trial. Not yet. 
Now, yeah, we'll see, right? Mm. So if you're starting a small uh, professional services company, um, like what would be some advice that you would give from a legal perspective? Sure. Um, You know, I I guess it goes back to making sure uh, you have a great contract. And um, just just start with that. Spend some extra time on that. Because as I said earlier, that's kind of the mothership of what you do from then on out. And it's there to protect you and make sure everything's fair for you. So that... Um, number one, number two, lining yourself up with a good broker who knows your space. Um, so from my field's perspective, those are two things I would say, you know, you really need to, to spend some time on and, and do it right. Yep. Mentioned those two things a couple of times during the conversation. So, oh yeah. yeah. Good advice for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For sure. What are some crazy laws that maybe people don't know exist, whether it be in Arizona specifically or, you know, wherever. I know there's some crazy sure. ones out there. So, um, I, there are some crazy laws that I'm aware of. I don't know. I haven't gone back and audited the statutes to, to see if they're still on the books, but, you know, there's some laws out there that people just don't bother to take off the books. My understanding is that there's a law uh, in Arizona that donkeys are not allowed to sleep in bathtubs, okay, b- believe it or not. So I've actually read that in several places. And what the story, as I understand it, is that there was a flood in Kingman, Arizona, in the 1920s, and a guy owned a donkey, and the donkey... Uh, you know, would stay outside and he had a bathtub just sitting out there and this flood actually his, his donkey would sleep in the bathtub. This flood carried his donkey away and the whole town had to like go chase after this donkey and try to rescue it. So they said, all right, you know, this took a lot of resources, a lot of people. So the people united and they lobbied and they passed this law. So, um, interesting. What about jackasses? Uh, jackasses are allowed to sleep. In <laughs> yes. Yeah, oddly, you're good, Sean. There's yeah, actually good. a little, ex- <laughs> yeah, there's a little codicil in there that allows for that. So you're safe. Uh, there's some other ones like my, my understanding is Marlboro, Massachusetts has a law that uh, prohibiting the detonation of nukes in city limits. So I guess maybe outside of city limits they're allowed. I don't know, but that's, that's awesome. The yeah. things that people have to write down. Yeah. Right? yeah. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of I, I, there's a lot of uh, I think in Alaska there's a law that you're not allowed to wake up a bear to take a picture with it. I guess you're allowed to wake it up for other reasons, but not to take a pic picture. I don't I don't know. So but only in Alaska. That's right. Okay. Yeah, I think in Oklahoma, you're not allowed to wrestle a bear or something like that. So I don't know how that law came about, but I'm sure somebody lost a, an appendage exactly. for that one. <laughs> so funny. So those are some that I'm aware of. There's probably a lot of other ones out there on the books, but. Oh, I'm yeah. sure. I'm sure. Yeah. What, what do you see? What about in Arizona specifically? And it, is it, what? what's the, maybe not the craziest law, but what's the thing that just some somehow comes up the most that people don't know? Oh boy, that's a good question. Um, what do, what are people really surprised about? You know, I, I guess people, um, some of my clients are surprised that plaintiffs, because I do defense work, can actually technically go after you for more than your policy limits. I mean, they'll, they'll say things like, wait a minute, that's why I have insurance. They can't go after me. So I have to advise them on risks, right? Mm-hmm. And what happens if we continue litigation, if they say, I don't want to settle. Uh, and I say, well, if we don't settle now, you know, you could be personally exposed to your company. And some of them are surprised. Um, a plaintiff is not limited to the insurance limits. They can go after you for, you know, whatever they think is fair and whatever jury is willing to award. Or maybe they don't think it's fair. Maybe they just want to do it out of spite. But so that's something that comes up a lot in terms of limitation of what you can claim as damages. Now, you have to prove them. You still have to prove them in a court sure. of law. But, yeah, it doesn't prevent you from trying to prove them up. So that's interesting. Yeah, I, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. One more question since you were involved in a aviation case previously, and I've been watching this documentary on Netflix. What happened to MH370? 
You know, I, I, I have not watched that, but it's on my list. I've got a long list. Um, I, have you watched? I just finished it last I, night. How was it? It's pretty amazing. It really? makes you question everything. Absolutely. Okay. No I, question. I have I mean, I have no idea. I mean, how does a plane just disappear? You don't know this, Sean, but uh, Kent's a tinfoil hat kind of guy, so he really Black gets helicopters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Never landed on the moon. One of those guys. Oh, yes. Was he in the show Lost? He seems like he's yes. been on the yes. I would have done great on that. Show. Yes, yes, absolutely. So I'll watch it. I'll put it on my list. I'm watching Full Swing right now. So about the PG. Oh, yeah. Oh, started yeah. That. That's really good, too. Yeah. yeah. You know what? If you finish it before Saturday, we can talk about it at the Flock of Seagulls show. Okay, perfect. <laughs> or Friday. Right. Right. That'll be like very apropos. So like, hey, toast to you. Hey, how about that PGA full swing? And, hey, the Iran's on. Let's listen. Let's do it. It's awesome. Yeah. Uh, what else? What else you want to get out there? Um, you know, I just, uh, it's, I, I love working with licensed professionals and, and I think you might've asked or one of your questions we talked about maybe before the show is what's the most challenging thing. I'll tell you what the most challenging thing is. is they're usually smarter than I am, but it's also a blessing. There's a lot of very bright licensed professionals out there. Um, and they tend to be very helpful, um, when we're representing them and defending them. So, um, I, I would say that, you know, I love what I do. Um, and you know, my, my, I guess my mantra is kind of, you know, be true to yourself and be true to your clients and, and help them through difficult times. And that's kind of what we do. Uh, so I, I'll just tell you like your profession and related professions love working with the, the men and women in, in that, in that space. Mm. It's great. That's cool. Yeah. And if, uh, if people do want to get a hold of you or like you said, you know, they starting a business or, or need an attorney, want somebody to help them with a sure. contract, uh, is that something you guys can help them with yeah. or how, how do they get a hold of you? So Google, of course, Sean Healy, uh, Lewis Brisboy Phoenix is an easy way to find me. Um, Lewis Brisboy, L-E-W-I-S, Brisboy. Uh, looks like Brisboy, but it's pronounced Brisboy. They can Google me. So, and, and that, the other thing I did want to say is um, I'm, I'm a big U of A basketball fan. Ah. So obviously, they had a rough go this year. Oh. Uh, terrible. Yeah. Um, so I'm rooting for we, the We Prince. deliberately did not ask you about that because uh, okay. I know the wound is still fresh. It, well, I couldn't talk about it until like a day ago. Sure. Uh, <laughs> Princeton Tigers all the way. I hope they Oh, hope yeah. They absolutely. It. You have to go Princeton just <laughs> j- just for the coverage. For, like, see, they at least made it to awesome. the Sweet 16. Four, we weren't that oh, much of a done. Brutal. Four teams we, ble- we beat are still in the tournament. So that's right. rough. And oh, then, yes. of course, our, our former coach. So. Oh, yeah. That's right. That's right. Good stuff. Well, Sean, anything? Uh, no, this has been awesome. Like, uh, I get, you know, I've had a, a, a experience with, with Sean a couple of times. been great mm-hmm. to work with him and uh, yeah, really good stuff. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks Thank for you. being here, Sean. It's yeah. been great. Great my, conversation. My pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me. All right. Adding value, making friends. We are. Once again. Again. If anyone would like to be a guest on a future show, shoot us an email at info at the Uh I look today, we're booking into June as a June. matter of fact. Yes. Kiss, yeah. rock and roll all night, available everywhere. Until next time, everyone, my takeaways. Don't wake up a bear. Don't sleep in a bathtub if you're a jackass. Most importantly, <laughs> be safe and healthy.